Hi, this is your host, Anthony Dinar, and your co-host, Brandon Hayes. Hello. And welcome to this episode of Minis. Welcome to Torture Vision. Stop it! We don't have time for the shite! I watched Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins, a movie from 1985. It stars Fred Ward of Tremors fame. He plays a cop whose death is faked against his will. When he wakes up in the hospital, he learns a secret government organization has given him a new face, new fingerprints, and a new name, Remo Williams. I'm not exactly sure why his name had to be so ridiculous, but whatever. Jason Ellis came up with that during Wolf Knife's naming. <laughs> no one knows who that is. <laughs> The secret government agency known as Cure is dedicated to preserving the Constitution by working outside of it. Remo was chosen to be a Cure agent because he was a decorated cop, an ex-marine with no family and no commitments. So basically he was a badass no one gave two fucks about. Like no one would cry if he ever died or disappeared. One of the secret agents above Remo is Mr. McCleary. McCleary tells Remo, our cops are corrupt, our judges are bought, our politicians are for sale. Everywhere you look, slime is on loose. What am I, watching Fox News? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not get away with it. <laughs> oh, I'm watching Glenn Beck. Okay. <laughs> this is what started Glenn Beck's career. He's like, I want to be Remo Williams. <laughs> uh, Harold Smith, the leader of Cure, is played by the never-aging, forever-old actor Wilford Brimley. <laughs> oh, nice! <laughs> this guy just had his 80th birthday a few days ago, and he looks no different from the day he was born. <laughs> I swear, fucking Brimley, Abe Vigoda, B. Arthur, Morgan Freeman... <laughs> They were all spawned from a secret race of geriatric Highlanders. <laughs> <laughs> I sold my soul to the devil, goddammit. <laughs> old people like, your insure is mine. <laughs> <laughs> Currency and little blue pills, <laughs> Viagra. <laughs> So Cure sends Remo on his first assassination job without telling him anything about who he's assassinating. Remo even asks, what's this guy done that's so bad? And McCleary responds, you're on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know that. <laughs> so Cure, a secret organization that recruits its agents against their will and orders them to kill people without explanation. Sure, that sounds legit. <laughs> At least we're getting shit done. <laughs> This hit is entirely phony, however. The man Remo was sent to kill is actually Chun, a cure agent and Korean martial artist. Chun is tasked with teaching Remo an ancient Korean fighting style known as Sinanju. Come Chun. What? <laughs> it's frightening, isn't it? <laughs> Just start making up Korean sounding words. When Remo fires his gun at Chun, Chun dodges the bullet like he's Neo in the fucking Matrix. Eventually, Chun teaches Remo this bullet time ability as well. Nice, that's pretty cool for 1985. Yeah, this is when I start to question the movie's intentions, though. Is it trying to be serious? Or is it a comedy? It's like a slightly more serious Hudson Hawk. <laughs> oh, let's not say things we can't take back. <laughs> also, I'm questioning the integrity of the script at this point. Remo was 
such a badass cop that Cure just had to get their hands on him, right? But now he needs additional training? Like, if Remo still needs to be trained, then he wasn't that special to begin with. Cure should have chosen someone Master Chen had already trained, perhaps someone younger than Fred Ward, who was 43 at the time of filming. And hey, here's an idea. Maybe one of Chen's existing students wouldn't need to be taken against his will. Here's one of the notes I wrote down while watching this film. I'm 54 minutes into this movie and Remo's still training. <laughs> Gotta have a montage. <laughs> I started to laugh when I thought to myself, this would be the world's greatest movie ever if it was all training. <laughs> like the whole two hour runtime was just Remo learning to fight and then text appears on the screen that says to be continued followed by credits. <laughs> like the movie studio says, hey, we said the adventure begins. We never promised a full complete adventure. <laughs> Read your ticket steps again. No refunds. <laughs> By the way, I mentioned Fred Ward was 43 years old in this movie. There's a moment where McCleary asks Chen when uh, Remo's training will be complete, and Chen says, 15 more years. <laughs> oh so, my god. So a 43-year-old Fred Ward will be a master Sinanju fighter when he's 58. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and then at 59, he'll be in a walker or a wheelchair. <laughs> I wish to Christ there was a Remo Williams 2, The Adventure Continues, made in <laughs> the year 2000 when Fred Ward finally finished his training. <laughs> 58-year-old Fred Ward. That would have been fucking amazing. <laughs> Hell, he's 72 now. I'd watch a Remo Williams movie <laughs> made today. <laughs> that doesn't say much. You watch crap. <laughs> I'm not going to get into the actual plot of this movie because I don't have enough time, but I definitely recommend people watch this for themselves. It's a bit slow with all the training and there's a lot of padding in the film, but there are several moments that make it totally worthwhile. Uh, I just want to mention a few last things. Uh, actress Kate Mulgrew is in this movie. You probably know her best as Captain Janeway from the god-awful Star Trek Voyager series. Worst captain ever. Worst series ever. But it's funny to watch her early work, like here in Remo Williams, when she was cast as a sex symbol. Oh, what? S sexy she was, Kate Mulgrew. She was born old. Just like Wolf... <laughs> just like fucking Brimley. <laughs> She's one of the geriatric Highlanders I was talking about Exactly. <laughs> when she dies, you're gonna feel... Feel the quickening. <laughs> <laughs> The funniest Kate Mulgrew sex symbol moment, and this is going way off topic, is when she appeared on the TV show Cheers and Sam Malone was all over her. <laughs> Those episodes are worth digging up and you can probably, I think you can still find them on Netflix. Anyway, uh, the Korean martial art master Chun is played by Joel Grey, a white man wearing Asian makeup. <laughs> because casting an actual Korean actor would have been ridiculous, right 80s? It's un-American, goddammit. <laughs> this movie's a real 1980s time capsule. Anyone nostalgic for the period should probably watch Remo just for that reason alone. The clothing, the hair, it's all very 80s. Also, we see a ton of New York city skyline shots complete with the world trade center towers which of course were destroyed in 2001 and then we have an entire action sequence on top of the statue of liberty which the ghostbusters completely decimated 
did in 1989. <laughs> it's a real blast from the past, this movie. One of the top evil henchmen Remo has to fight has a diamond embedded in his front tooth. It's to distinguish him from the other henchmen, I guess. Uh, when you see this diamond, you know the guy's top dog. Like, you don't mess with diamond tooth. He's scary. Like, I thought this was so stupid until I actually saw the purpose being served. Remo's trapped inside an airlock and poison gas is being pumped inside. Instead of just letting Remo die from the gas, fucking Diamond Tooth straps on a gas mask and enters the airlock to fight Remo. Of course, Remo kicks his ass and then smashes Diamond Tooth's face up against the airlock walls, which are made of glass. And then he uses Diamond Tooth as a glass cutter to get <laughs> out of the airlock. Nice! <laughs> it was so gloriously stupid, I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> the only thing better is the way Remo kills the final bad guy. Remo kicks his ass and leaves him lying next to an overturned truck and uh, then Remo starts to walk away and you're thinking to yourself, what? You're gonna let this bastard live? But then Remo rips a twig off a nearby branch and he rubs it with his fingers so fast it catches fire. Come on. <laughs> he throws the burning branch into some gas that was leaking from the overturned truck and the truck explodes <laughs> and it kills the bad guy and then Remo just walks away triumphant. The end. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it was so stupid. <laughs> Would you watch this full movie? Yeah, absolutely. Anybody who doesn't want to watch this film deserves diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> I think you owe Wilford Brimley some money now. <laughs> Because you said his copyrighted way of saying diabetes. Is that really copyrighted? I, I, I doubt it. <laughs> you could have told me. I would have believed that too. Because <laughs> you don't fuck with Brimley. <laughs> I take it all back. It can be only one. <laughs> he is the winner of the... Uh, the prize. Yeah, yeah, of the prize. <laughs> Hi, this is Anthony Dinar and your co-host, Brandon Hayes. Hello. And welcome to this episode of Minis. Welcome to Torture Vision. I recently watched The Baby, a movie from 1973. The story revolves around this social worker named Anne, who's in charge of investigating the Wadsworth family. Mrs. Wadsworth is a single mother. She has two daughters who are in their late 20s or early 30s, and a nameless son everyone just calls Baby. Actor David Mooney played Baby, and in 1973, he was 32 years old. Wait, what? <laughs> The characters in this script often call Baby a retard or a mental case, but basically he's just an undeveloped human being. He wasn't raised properly, and because of this, he's forever stuck in this baby mindset. Oh, so at first I was thinking like, okay, it makes sense because he's got a mental abnormality, but he's normal? He just, he was neglected as a kid? Yeah. This is stupid. <laughs> I didn't even get through <laughs> the start of this review. Uh, the Wadsworth keep Baby in a giant crib. They dress him in giant baby clothes. He does his business in giant diapers. It's bizarre. <laughs> it's like one of those gross fetishes. It's, I'll pay you to change my diaper. Yeah. <laughs> He's not slow or retarded or anything. He just loves being changed in a big, massive diaper. He loves breastfeeding. <laughs> uh, this entire movie is captivating, but I don't think it was good <laughs> at all. Uh, I can't say it was bad either, though. I just uh, I just kept thinking, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> That's what the audience is thinking right now. <laughs> 
Uh, early in this movie, Miss Wadsworth explains that the family's sole source of income is baby's welfare checks. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> so they, they have zero motivation to improve baby's living conditions. And the social worker says she wants to prove baby's intelligent, that he can learn like a normal human being, and that he can grow up mentally. I'm no expert, but I think that ship has sailed. <laughs> yeah. Like 30 some years of developmental neglect is probably irreversible. Yeah. Uh, the state should. To just take this man away <laughs> put him in assisted living for the rest of his life you know like hell the fact that he doesn't have a real name that the family just calls him baby <laughs> is more than enough evidence that he's victim of abuse <laughs> Can you imagine that first interaction where he asked the social worker to change his dirty diaper? <laughs> he doesn't talk, though. Oh, he doesn't? <laughs> he only, like, cries just, like a baby. He just lays on the ground and sticks his feet up in the air, like, in the change me position. Pretty much. <laughs> Uh, however, Baby's uh, level of intelligence fluctuates throughout the film. Sometimes he understands and follows commands, and other times he doesn't. His room is decorated with paintings and crayon drawings he made, pictures of people, horses, fucking submarines, shit no baby would be capable of producing. You were just a dumb baby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were drawing submarines? <laughs> At age two. Um, anyway, Baby crawls everywhere he goes, but one day Anne drops by the Wadsworth house and helps Baby stand like an adult. As soon as Anne leaves, one of Baby's sisters attacks Baby with a cattle prod, yelling, Baby doesn't talk, Baby doesn't walk, and Baby doesn't stand. <laughs> so now we clearly see why Baby's in the condition he's in. This is a gold mine movie. Why isn't this, <laughs> this so popular? I don't know why no one's fucking heard of this. <laughs> Anne doesn't see this abuse, but she starts to figure it out with clues here and there. She reports it to her boss saying, Negative reinforcement, some kind of consistent punishment, is discouraging baby from normal learning. And then she also takes a guess as to why this is happening. She says, uh, Mrs. Wadsworth's husband walked out on her. So the mother probably never got over that abandonment, and now she's taking her revenge on the only male member of the family. But again, that's just pure speculation on her part this sounds like a bad porno plot like is this how you discovered this film <laughs> no <laughs> what would i type into google to find that i don't know i don't have this problem <laughs> <laughs> So um, this next part of the movie is completely unexplained, and I'm just guessing here, but um, even my assumptions really don't hold water. So so all of Anne's due diligence starts to put the Wadsworth family in the hot seat. They might lose their welfare checks and lose baby. Hell, they might even get hit with some prison time if uh, Anne doesn't just disappear. So they decide to get Anne out of the picture by ruining her credibility. And so there's a scene where the oldest Wadsworth sister gets naked and climbs into the crib with baby because that's what this movie was missing some creepy implied incest <laughs> and then the next thing we know Anne gets a call from her boss and we can only hear Anne's half of the conversation but she says it's not true and then we learn that Anne was fired so I'm assuming this adult baby was assaulted sexually and then the Wadsworths blamed Anne like they framed her and then there was no investigation 
whatsoever. Anne was just fired immediately. <laughs> I don't know. Like that that part of the movie didn't make sense to me. So it seems like there's a key scene missing at this point, but whatever. So Anne's fired and uh, she's no longer a social worker, but that doesn't mean she gives up her quest to save baby. She threatens the Wadsworths, telling them they haven't won, that this is only the beginning. So the Wadsworths decide the only way to be rid of Anne once and for all is to pretend they're sorry. They invite Anne to baby's birthday party with the intent to drug her drink so she passes out and then they'll murder her once the party's over <laughs> Anne shows up to the party and it's a full-on 70s blowout it's shocking to see how many people are actually in attendance you wouldn't think the wadsworths would have many friends but they do <laughs> and these people are dancing up a storm like i could watch 70s dancing all day long there's no grace or technique to it people <laughs> just gyrate about like they're being electrocuted <laughs> Oh, and this is funny. Actor Michael Pataki is in this film. He's just one of the party goers. Uh, people might know him best as the villain JC from the MST3K movie, The Side Hackers. Uh, his name is Dennis in this movie. And Dennis hits on Anne. And I wrote down this dialogue because it was so good. So Dennis approaches her and says, Hi, I'd like to pay you a sincere compliment. You've got beautiful skin. Anne says, Don't tell me. You're a dermatologist. And Dennis says, No, just a skin freak. <laughs> Awesome actor. I'm glad to see he's been in other awesome films. <laughs> I, I wish I had the balls to try that on a real woman. <laughs> we should do that. No. <laughs> Anyway, um, I think I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to fast track to the ending. And spoiler alerts for anyone who wants to watch this movie, you should probably stop listening now. Nobody wants to watch this shit. <laughs> and if you do, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> the Wadsworths successfully drug Anne, and they stash her in the basement until the party is over. Once all the party guests leave, the Wadsworths return to the basement to kill Anne, only it turns out Anne escaped, and she took Baby with her. So Anne dresses up baby in a suit and tie and take some pictures of him and then just sends those pictures to the wadsworth because like kidnapping the baby wasn't enough like she's got to pour some salt in the wounds and she sends these pictures hoping that they'll think like oh she's fixing baby she's you know educating him uh and that'll piss him off and they do get pissed off and so they make it their mission to find out where ann lives and they're gonna steal baby back and probably kill ann but then ann kills them all she attacks them with knives and fire axes axes just fucking armed to the teeth <laughs> and finally because this movie wasn't crazy enough it turns out that Anne never wanted to help baby develop into a fully functional adult at all uh she wants him to stay a baby forever just like the wadsworths did what Here's what happened. A long time ago, Anne's husband suffered from some head trauma. So he's basically an adult baby too. So Anne just wanted to kidnap baby so that baby could be her husband's new playmate. Oh my god. So Anne, her brain damaged husband, and this mentally underdeveloped baby live happily ever after, and the corpses of the Wadsworths are buried underneath Anne's brand new backyard pool. The end. And then that's when the Crypt Keeper came out, right? And <laughs> it does feel like it's like a Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> well, until next time, kitties. <laughs> you don't have any thoughts on this? No. <laughs> this is horrible. Hi, this is Anthony Dinar and your co-host, Brandon Hayes. Hello. And welcome to this episode of Minis. Welcome to Torture Vision. I recently had the misfortune of watching American Gothic, a movie from 1988. 
is an uninspired paint-by-numbers slasher flick with a vast majority of the deaths happening off-camera. I almost bailed on this review. The movie put me in such a bad mood. I could feel my brain getting sober despite the fact that I was drinking. It was like an 85-minute-long buzzkill. <laughs> Anyway, this movie starts by introducing us to Cynthia, a woman who's been institutionalized due to a mental breakdown. She snaps after her child died. She left it alone in the tub while she went to answer the phone. Um, I don't know the mortality rate of that situation in real life. I'm sure it's pretty high. But in the movies, if you leave your baby alone in the bathtub, it'll die 100% of the time. Guaranteed. <laughs> Doctors have given Cynthia a clean bill of health, so she's being released. Uh, her husband, Jeff, arrives at the institution to pick her up. Jeff decides that what Cynthia needs most is a vacation. So he's gathered a bunch of her friends, and they're going to fly to a remote forest island to party. <laughs> Unfortunately, Jeff's shitty little Cessna-style plane succumbs to some unidentified mechanical failure and they're forced to make an emergency landing on an unfamiliar forest island. However, why should that put a damper on the party? Like some moron character says, Woods are woods, gang. We came here to party. Woo! <laughs> like, if I never see another horror movie that starts with a group of 30-year-old teenagers getting drunk and high in the woods, I'll be very happy. <laughs> It'll probably happen a hundred more times before I die. <laughs> Eventually, these idiots decide to search the island for help, because I guess they're running low on beer and weed. Hey, speak for yourself, man. You just never made it to college. <laughs> Is that the cool thing to do? <laughs> don't you hate those movies, though? Like, that premise? Yeah, it's, it's dumb. It's, it's just annoying. They don't put that much thought into it. It's the cheapest way to get anyone anywhere, to get your movie started. And the easiest way to probably get laid, which is probably why they still make those films. But you think the director got laid? From no, this? the the jackass who took his dumb girlfriend to the theater. Oh. Sadly, we're not making any money off of this, nor are we getting laid for doing this podcast. Oh. <laughs> we should do this podcast in the woods with beer and weed. <laughs> Eventually, these idiots decide to search the island for help, because I guess they're running low on beer and weed, so who wants to be stranded without the essentials, right? And they find an empty house in the woods. They justify breaking in by saying, maybe there's a phone inside. We can use it to call for help. But once they're inside, they don't bother to look for a telephone. <laughs> they fire up the house record player, dig through the homeowner's closet, try on the homeowner's clothing, and then they just dance around like morons. Well, they are high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's at this point that Ma and Pa return home to see their home's been invaded. Now, I know from the IMDb summary, Ma and Pa are the parents of a, quote, crazed homicidal family, but I'm on their side. These fucking teenagers deserve exactly what's coming to them. I only wish their deaths would happen much faster. Yeah, they stole Ma and Pa's weed. <laughs> By the way, I should say... But I really like the premise of innocent people getting stranded in remote locations, only to be terrorized by some backwoods yokels or inbred mutants. Kind of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or The Hills Have Eyes. But these type of movies are almost always disappointing. Like, I sat through all five Wrong Turn movies. They're making a sixth one that comes out in October, and I'm a big dummy because I plan to watch that one too. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I love this premise, but I typically hate the final product. But anyway, uh, 
Ma and Pa are upset that their home's been invaded, but they do their best to mask their rage. Ma especially is very cordial, very polite. And Jeff asks, do you have a phone we can use or any gas you can spare? And Pa responds, we don't believe in those contraptions. What are they, Amish? <laughs> yeah, that's what I wrote down. For the rest of the movie, Ma and Pa live this very Amish lifestyle and they don't have technology of any kind except for that record player. <laughs> what the fuck is that noisy demon box? doing on the property <laughs> that's the devil's music <laughs> so with no phone no lights no motor car not a single luxury these teens are forced to remain stranded and uh, silver <laughs> yeah. mom and pa allow them to stay in the house and that's when things take a turn for the worse every 10 minutes or so another family member is revealed like mom and pa's daughter fanny the actress who plays Fanny was 43 years old when the movie was filming, but the Fanny character thinks she's only 12. Fanny's brothers, Woody and Teddy, also act like children. The children all have their creepy quirks, like Fanny carries around this mummified baby corpse, and she treats it like it's alive. But creepy and gross doesn't always equal scary. Like, Fanny's a hefty girl, but when push comes to shove, she's easily overpowered. Like, Fanny's just gross compared to, I don't know, like Leatherface. Leatherface makes people shit their pants and run for dear life. <laughs> you know, like, no one's doing that from Franny. So I'm not recommending anyone watch this movie. Like I said, it put me in a really, really bad mood, but there is one part that made me laugh uncontrollably, and I have to blame that on entertainment deprivation, because, <laughs> like, I doubt anyone else is going to find this nearly as funny as I did. But Jeff gets in an argument with Pa, and Pa is really, like, a strict religious man, so he doesn't tolerate cursing. And when Jeff says the word bullshit, Pa's reaction is fucking hilarious. At least it was to me, so I'm going to play that clip right now. Is this guy going to show up today? There's a chance he'll show up, yes. Bullshit. Bullshit. Listen to me. You never say bullshit. Don't you understand that? Never do that. God will send an angel down to wash out your mouth with soap. Yeah, that was fucking ridiculous. <laughs> I fucking love the way he says, Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed so fucking hard at that. And then, like, talking about how angels are going to come down from heaven and wash your mouth out with soap. <laughs> fucking genius. <laughs> you really are suffering from entertainment deprivation. <laughs> and probably so is our audience. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, like I said, there's a lot of uh, death in this movie, but it's almost all off camera. There are a lot of creepy shenanigans, too, but most of it comes off as comical rather than scary. Um, actor Rod Steger plays Pa, and actress uh, Yvonne DiCarlo plays Ma. Uh, DiCarlo is probably best known for playing Lily in the 1960s TV show The Munsters. Fans of these actors might want to check out this movie. Fans of these actors might want to check out a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> they're out there <laughs> and finally for anyone who does want to watch this movie i'm about to spoil the ending so cynthia gets kind of sort of adopted by this weirdo family they don't kill her they let her become one of them and you might think she's just playing along uval she... gobble uval gobble <laughs> one of us one of us yeah <laughs> Exactly. And you might think she's just playing along until she gets a chance to escape. 
But no, she's content to live with this family until Fanny attempts to give her mummified corpse baby a bath. And when Cynthia sees this, she has these awful flashbacks to like bathing her own child who drowned long ago. And the flashbacks cause Cynthia to go into this crazy rage and she ends up murdering everyone. So in the final shot of the movie, when Cynthia is the last one standing, you just see her break down even further. She sits next to a baby crib and stares out into space like a brainless zombie. The end. That ended a lot better than I anticipated, actually. I guess. But again, like, all the deaths <laughs> are off camera. Like, why do you watch a slasher flick if you're not going to see any gore? That shit's expensive, man. They spent all their funds on that fucking demon box. <laughs> the, the people actually probably spent all their money on Rod Steger and Yvonne DeCar. Carlo. <laughs> I don't care what you say. It wasn't enough. <laughs> Hi, this is Anthony Dinar and your co-host Brandon Hayes. Hello. And welcome to this episode of Minis. Welcome to Torture Vision. Today I watched The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant, a movie from 1971. It stars Bruce Dern, the father of Laura Dern, as a mad scientist, more or less. His name is Roger, and Roger's wife, Linda, is played by Pat Priest. She's probably most famous for her role on the 1960s TV show The Munsters. She was one of several different actresses who played Marilyn Munster. This movie also features Casey Kasem, who's kind of our hero, even though he's barely in it. His appearance kind of felt like an extended cameo to me. Also, after checking IMDb, I was shocked to learn that Casey had a legitimate acting career. I thought he was basically limited to voicing Shaggy in Scooby-Doo cartoons, but I was wrong. So Roger and Linda live together in a big house on an isolated countryside. Linda is absolutely beautiful and starving for attention, but Roger couldn't care less. He's obsessed with his work, creating two-headed monsters. Well, I mean, society needs that. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> we need men like this. His laboratory set is full of real-life animals like rabbits and monkeys, and they have fake plastic heads attached to their necks, near their real heads, side by side, so you can spot the real head from the prop head instantly. <laughs> but I guess the special effects guys did their best for 1970s. Roger has this helper, an Igor, if you will, named Max. Max is an old man with a broken down body. He's hoping together that Roger and him can perfect their transplant techniques enough so they can put his head on a new human body. I guess he's hoping for immortality of sorts. Only the actor who plays Max was 59 during filming. He must have been a real hard living guy too because he looks 69 minimum. You can plop that head onto a teenage body if you want, but your ancient noggin is still going to die of old <laughs> soon. <laughs> anyway, I mentioned Casey Kasem. He's Roger's best friend, Ken, but uh, Roger basically ignores him too. If Roger can't find any free time to hang with smoking hot Pat Priest, uh, Casey Kasem doesn't stand a chance. There's also a mentally challenged landscaper who maintains Roger's yard. This guy's name is Danny. He's dumb as a rock, but he has a muscular giant-sized body. Immediately after being introduced to this character, you know exactly what's going to happen to him. He's headed straight for Roger operating table. The movie basically starts with Linda complaining to Roger that he doesn't spend enough time with her. And there's a great bit of dialogue I wrote down between the two of them that really highlights how shitty their relationship is. So Linda says, what am I supposed to do when you lock yourself away for 24 hours a day? Roger says, I'll make a deal with you. If you let me go on with what I'm doing just a little while longer and be patient, then I'll take you away to any place you want to go. And Linda's disappointed. She says, but you said that before. And Roger responds, but you know what happened before. I didn't mean it, but I do now. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> 
I blatantly lied last time. <laughs> it's terrible. So Roger goes about working on his twisted experiments in his locked up laboratory, and Linda's left to fend for herself. Meanwhile, a crazy lunatic named Cass escapes from a nearby mental institution and winds up on Roger's property. This guy Cass is worse than a rabid animal. The very second he spots another human being, he's compelled to murder it. The only thing that saves Linda from being murdered by Cass is that she's so beautiful, Cass wants to sexually assault her first. <laughs> Long story short, Linda is surprisingly saved by her degenerate husband, and he also manages to kill Cass. And just before Cass takes his final breaths, Roger lops off his head and sews it to Danny's body. <laughs> so let me get this straight. The attempted rape scene lasted for at least 24 hours for him to get back out of the room to find that she was being salt assaulted and uh, and possibly murdered. Great. <laughs> that, that's horrible. It did take a long... It wasn't 24 hours, but it did take a long time <laughs> for him to save the day. But uh, yeah, then he just grabs Danny for no good reason. Like, hey, Danny, come in here and, and just makes him an experiment. Uh, immediately after this operation is over, Roger looks down at his new creation and says, It's done. May God forgive us. Like, he laments the surgery was ever completed. Like, why are so many mad scientists like this? They're so damn gung-ho to, like, toss ethics aside and create monstrosities. But the very moment they've completed the task, they feel saddened and ashamed. Well, you've never aspired to do anything great. That's your problem. <laughs> but, I mean, he's looking at it like, oh. Now that I'm looking at this hideous two-headed man, I, I kind of feel like I shouldn't have made it. <laughs> Do you think the director felt this way after this movie? <laughs> like, why did I make this? I certainly hope so. When Cass wakes up and realizes his head is now sewn onto Danny's body, he isn't upset or devastated at all. He just says something like, hmm, not bad. Take a look at your Uncle Cass now, girls. And then Cass is somehow able to control all of Danny's body, and Danny is helpless to stop it. Cass continues his pointless murder spree, all while Danny just whimpers and cries. Pussy. <laughs> the absolute best part of this movie is when law enforcement gets involved. They start investigating all the murders, and they let the entire community get involved. They ask Casey Kasem if he wants to ride along as they drive from crime scene to crime scene. Yeah, he's going to count down the top ten. Yeah, like, <laughs> even though he's not affiliated with the police force in any way, they're like, hey, you want to ride along? <laughs> and then, like, at one point, the cops fish out this dead woman's body from a nearby lake, and townspeople are surrounding the body, poking it, moving it around a fucking stray dog wanders onto the crime scene and the cops don't shoo it away <laughs> and when the cops hear there's another murder nearby they just leave the scene and they let the townsfolk deal with a dead woman however they see fit wow nice i know i say this often but i swear the cops in this movie are the worst <laughs> cops in any movie ever until the next time you see a cop movie <laughs> <laughs> So I'll give another spoiler alert for anyone who wants to watch this film. Uh, I'm about to give away the ending. Roger and Casey Kasem track down the two-headed monster inside this old abandoned mine shaft, and they kill it by accidentally causing a cave-in. Uh, Roger is killed too, as well as Max, his old Igor friend. And it's probably for the best. Yeah, probably. I, I wasn't crying. <laughs> the only two people to survive are Linda and Casey Kasem. 
And just before the cops show up, Linda says, We can't tell the police what really happened. I don't want Roger to be remembered as a mad scientist. So when the cops arrive on the scene, Casey Kasem just says, The murderer died in the mine collapse. It was dumb old Danny. Roger did what he had to do to stop him. Roger died a hero. So that's how the movie ends. Roger was never blamed for all the death and destruction he caused. His science was never exposed to the public, which, you know, in the right ethical hands, probably could have done society a world of good. Danny, a completely innocent man, was demonized posthumously, and the community still lives in fear of Cass, an escaped mental patient who they think is still at large. So... Uh, two final things. The soundtrack to this movie sounds like someone is learning to play the guitar. <laughs> like every fucking note is off. It's like someone's just mashing their fingers against the guitar strings. It's fucking horrendous. And uh, two, it might interest you to know that American International Pictures theatrically distributed this film on a double bill with the 1970s classic Scream and Scream Again. Oh, God. Which is, our, which is something we already reviewed on this uh, website a few months back so you have any thoughts on this one too bad Casey Kasem wasn't around to preserve Anthony Lanza's name the director for making this film <laughs> maybe this uh, this film would have benefited if director Anthony Lanza had his head sewn onto a competent director's body <laughs> <laughs> hi my name is Anthony Dinar and this is my co-host Brandon Hayes hello and welcome to this episode of minis Welcome to Torture Vision. So I watched Black Moon Rising, a movie from 1986. It stars Tommy Lee Jones, Linda Hamilton, and Robert Vaughn. Jones plays a professional thief named Quint. He's hired by the FBI to steal a data tape from some company that's under federal investigation. Right away, I have to question why the feds need to outsource this cassette theft. Don't they have highly trained agents who can do this job in-house? I wonder how many common criminals are currently on the FBI payroll. Anyway, Quint manages to steal this tape rather easily, but security guards from the company who own the tape chase after Quint, and he's forced to hide it someplace safe. Unfortunately, he picks the absolute worst hiding spot possible. He stuffs it inside what's essentially the trunk of a highly experimental, one-of-a-kind prototype race car, the Black Moon. I have no idea why this movie is titled Black Moon Rising. It never rises, not physically or metaphorically. Uh, in Finland and West Germany, the movie is just called Black Moon, and in Japan, it's called Black Rider, and both of those are much better titles. Uh, anyway, uh, actress Linda Hamilton plays Nina, a professional car thief. She steals high-class cars for Ed Ryland's chop shop. Ed Ryland is Robert Vaughn's character. Of course, one night Nina steals Black Moon, so the people who designed Black Moon want to steal it back, and Quint decides to help them so he can get his stupid data tape back. And now that you know the plot, there's not much more for me to say about this film. Uh, it's very dull. Like, if they were going to re-release this on DVD today, you could slap the tagline on it that says, This is your grandfather's Fast and Furious. <laughs> In all fairness to Black Moon Rising, though, I even find the Fast and Furious movies to be quite boring. I just don't like car porn. David Cronenberg likes car porn. <laughs> yeah, he he's the only one. <laughs> <laughs> Him and the asshole who wrote the book that movie's based on. But I don't give a shit about V6s or V8s, Edelbrock intakes or Mayahoff lifters, but people who do might find Black Moon Rising to be perfectly entertaining. In fact, I was thinking the whole movie that Black Moon looked almost identical to the goofy car that Chuck Wagner drives in the Automan TV show. <laughs> And I wasn't surprised to see that someone mentioned that on IMDb, on the message boards. Of course, that comment was ripped apart by car nerds. Auto Man drove 
drove a Lamborghini, dummy. <laughs> I actually wrote one of the comments down. This is from IMDb user Hyperpup. Auto Man didn't drive this car. He drove a modified Lamborghini Contosh. A few magazines mistook this for an Aston Martin Bulldog, though. It's like, oh, come on. <laughs> I didn't stay awake through all of Black Moon Rising just to be lulled to sleep by its message boards. <laughs> Speaking of boring-ass techno babble, this is a funny mistake. There are basically three men who designed and built Black Moon. One of them is named Earl Wyndham, and there's a scene where Earl is talking to some potential investors, and he says, Even the body's unique. It's made up of Kelvar, the same material they use for bulletproof vests. <laughs> Kelvar? <laughs> you mean Kevlar? <laughs> you don't even know what you're talking about, sir. <laughs> I can see the bullshit rising. <laughs> <laughs> you can see the message boards. Excuse me, sir. It was it was a 1984 version of Kevlar. They called it Kevlar. <laughs> but no, that was just a fuck up, plain and simple. <laughs> In addition to the cars, men were supposed to enjoy watching Linda Hamilton on screen. I thought she looked awful, though. Like her 80s hair was horrendous. Being a professional thief, she changed her appearance a lot, so she owned a ton of different wigs, and all her wigs were shitty too. She does offer up a brief shot of nudity, I think. Like, the shot was really dark, so I'm not sure if I saw a nipple or just the shadow of a nipple. But even still, it was during a sex scene with Tommy Lee Jones, so I didn't even bother to rewind it. <laughs> even in 1986, Tommy Lee Jones had more wrinkles than a bulldog. <laughs> he was perpetually old. <laughs> It looked like Linda Hamilton was making out with one of the California raisins. <laughs> also, uh, Robert Vaughn's chop shop was in the parking garage of these two twin skyscrapers. And in one of the buildings, he even had some of the nicer stolen cars on display. Like, granted, his chop shop mechanics could have broken down several stolen cars and made untraceable new ones, but still, it seems kind of risky to just display these cars out in the open. Also, they never once explained what Robert Vaughn's legitimate business was. Like, he was making all this real money selling stolen cars, but he still needs a real business to explain to the IRS how he can afford skyscraper real estate and a fleet of luxury vehicles. Yeah, he's got to launder the money somehow. Yeah, like maybe in this universe, Robert Vaughn finally succeeded in his scheme to control the world's coffee supply, like in Superman 3. Like, <laughs> that's all I could think of. So I would say this movie's a pass, but would you go against my recommendations and actually watch it? No, I'm definitely not going to watch this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty bad. Uh, by the way, I just want to edit this final comment into our video. I complained about the title Black Moon Rising. Well, the tagline of the movie says, From the mind of John Carpenter comes a towering adventure that thunders across Los Angeles and explodes 30 stories above it. So the rising in question is in reference to a scene toward the very end of the movie where Tommy Lee Jones drives Black Moon up the skyscraper via a freight elevator and then jumps the car from one skyscraper to another. Like the jump eats up 10 seconds of screen time at best. Like this stunt might have been impressive for the time, but I still wouldn't have named my entire movie after it. <laughs> Fucking stupid. Hi, this is your host, Anthony Dinar, and your co-host, Brandon Hayes. Hello. And welcome to this episode of Minis. 
Welcome to Torture Vision. Unspecialized original edition of Star Wars was released on May 25th, 1977. I'm talking about Episode 4, A New Hope, in case anyone's confused. Even though that part of the title, Episode 4, A New Hope, wasn't added to the film until 1981. Most people don't realize it, but George Lucas has been fucking with these movies for decades. <laughs> he can't keep his grubby mitts off him. Well, now he has to, thank God. <laughs> thank you, Disney. <laughs> anyway, on September 17th, 1978, over a year after Star Wars, the very first episode of Battlestar Galactica aired on television. George Lucas and 20th Century Fox filed a lawsuit against the producers of Battlestar, claiming it was a Star Wars ripoff. That lawsuit was dismissed in 1980, probably because you can't copyright space and spaceships. <laughs> Fucking Lucas sued everybody. He even sued the goddamn government because they called something Star Wars. Missile defense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and let's be honest, Star Wars itself is just a bunch of stolen content, mostly cannibalized <laughs> from old adventure serials. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I bring all this up because the movie I watched today, Star Crash, was released on March 9th, 1979, about six months after Battlestar. So if George Lucas actually wanted to win his lawsuit, he should have ignored Battlestar and gone after Luigi Cozy, the writer and director of Star Crash. I've never sat through the entirety of Turkish Star Wars, but Star Crash is easily in contention to be the most egregious Star Wars ripoff ever made. <laughs> Two smugglers, Acton and Stella Star, get arrested by the dreaded space police. They're sentenced to hard labor on some prison planet by, I guess, the chief of space police? Uh, he's a big weirdo alien. He kind of looks like Kang and Kodos from The Simpsons. Anyway, the plot of this movie is real muddy and convoluted, but boiling it down to its simplest form, Acton and Stella are eventually released from prison so they can team up with the two space cops who busted them. And together, the four of them go on a mission to destroy the evil Count Zarth Arn's super weapon. And Count Zarth Arn is basically Darth Vader. Yeah. Combined with a touch of the master from Mano's Hands of Fate. <laughs> uh, Zarth Arn rules the League of Dark Worlds, which is essentially the Empire. And his super weapon is a computerized planet, or basically the Death Star. <laughs> so our smuggler heroes, Acton and Stella, go hunting for Zarth Arn's Death Star with their space cop companions, Thor and L. Thor's an unlikable asshole. He's kind of like a green-skinned Uncle Fester. And L is much more friendly. My initial notes described him as a phallic-headed robot cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> L speaks in Backwoods Hick for some unexplained reason. Uh, I also have to question why his name is just L. Like, the fucking droids in Star Wars were garbage, but at least they had full names like C-3PO and R2-D2. If I was the scriptwriter after having seen L's costume, I would have named the character L4M3, which kind of spells out the word lame. <laughs> <laughs> At various points in the movie, Acton, who's basically Luke Skywalker with a poofy afro, is revealed to have all sorts of unexplained force-like powers. He can God damn it, seriously? Yeah, he can manipulate electricity, heal people, and even see into the future. And his future visions are completely pointless, though, because he never changes what he sees. 
he explains, changing the future is against the law. So, now I have a few questions. Number one, if Acton refuses to use his future sight for any purpose whatsoever, why does he even have this power? Shouldn't this have been cut from the script? Uh, two, who exactly enforces this law of the universe? Is it like a Jean-Claude Van Damme time cop situation? Is Max Walker from the Time Enforcement Commission gonna bust Acton for time crime? And number three, I almost failed to realize this because the movie was putting me to sleep, but Acton is a fucking smuggler. His entire <laughs> lifestyle is against the law. <laughs> Is this guy's moral space compass broken or what? <laughs> I should mention the only reason I decided to watch this film is because of Christopher Plummer. He plays the Emperor, the leader of the good guys. Only he barely appears in the movie. After the movie was over, I read the IMDb trivia page and learned that all of Christopher Plummer's scenes were filmed in a single day. And that fact certainly shows. He didn't want to stay on set any longer than he had to. No. The Emperor has a son, though, Prince Simon, who turned out to be actor David Hasselhoff. So that sort of helped the star power of this film. No pun intended. <laughs> uh, ultimately, though, the main reason I kept watching was for actress Caroline Monroe, who plays Stella Starr. She's on camera throughout most of the film, and especially early on, she wears nothing but a space bikini. I could pretty much watch her in anything, and browsing through her IMDb filmography, I can guarantee she'll appear on future episodes of Torture Vision. <laughs> She's made some god-awful garbage. Uh, overall, Star Crash is bad, but it's definitely watchable. I can tell writer-director Luigi Cozy had no fucking clue what he was making. He saw Star Wars one day and said to himself, This is a bunch of gobbledygook. I can make up my own sci-fi movie and we just as a wealthy. <laughs> Oh my god. I imagine that's what he sounds like. <laughs> I'm sure that impression is spot on. Seriously though, you can barely call this movie science fiction. It's just fiction in space. Like there's a scene where the good guys jump inside hollow torpedoes and fire themselves at Zartharn's spaceship. And they blast holes right through the hull. And then they just jump out of their torpedoes and start shooting at the bad guys. They're not even getting blown into space. The atmosphere on the ship is perfectly fine. It's <laughs> fucking stupid. Oh, and I forgot to mention earlier when I was talking about this movie being a Star Wars ripoff that both Acton and David Hasselhoff both fight with lightsabers. Oh, come on! Are you fucking kidding me? Jesus Christ! They're not weapons that mildly resemble lightsabers. No, they're just full-on lightsaber knockoffs. <laughs> Finally, before I end this video, I should mention that Acton was played by Marjo Gortner. And this guy is really interesting. His first name is a combination of the names Mary and Joseph. Marjo. Stupid. When he was fucking lame. When he was four years old, he was known as the world's youngest ordained minister. He preached all that faith healing stuff like Benny Hinn, but he quit the church to pursue acting. And in 1972, he was in this documentary simply titled Marjo, where he talked about how he suffered a crisis of consciousness and decided to walk away from the revival circuit. It was basically an expose on evangelism, and he talked about how he used to con people, basically. Wow, that's cool. Um, cool that like he did the documentary. Not cool that he did that to yeah, people. Right. <laughs> but in closing, like I said, Star Crash is watchable, but I don't know if I'd recommend it really. Uh, it's it sounds like you should watch the documentary. <laughs> yeah, definitely watch that because that is fucking awesome. 
Star Crash is currently on Netflix, so it's easy to get a hold of. Nice. It's better than all three Star Wars prequels. I'll give you that. <laughs> and it's maybe on par with those Ewok adventure movies. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> you can cut this out if you want, but I'm going to, like, if, if we can't fit this in, and then I'll continue with where I was going. But... Um, Someone made a comment the other day about uh, George Lucas and how he sold all this shit to Disney. And then he said, like, but they didn't use any of my ideas for the new movies. It's like, thank God they didn't because they want to make a profit. Yeah. (laughs) But um, but then the question was, should he even be allowed to give any input into the new Star Wars movies? And and some people said no. and, And other people have said, like. Yeah, like he created Star Wars. He should have some creative input. It doesn't mean that they have to use it. but It's all negotiable. Ten- depends on what they put but in the I contract. But I say no. I say he shouldn't have anything to do yeah. with it whatsoever. They shouldn't even in- entertain his ideas because he's proven himself to be a jackass with those prequel movies. Right. And it's kind of like people are saying, well, he's got the right to to do what he wants with the prequels or you know, to, to give his advice on what to do with the new Star Wars movies. I say no because, like, it, just because it's his creation, his baby, his Star Wars is his, and then, like, you, you can have a kid yourself, and then you raise that child properly and everything's fine. You molest that child, it gets taken away from you, right? <laughs> so in your analogy. So the prequels, yeah. The prequels <laughs> is basically George Lucas touching the franchise inappropriately (laughs) and so now disney is the new parental guardian and you don't ask the guy who touched the child like hey how do you think i should be raising this child there's a reason you're in charge now you don't ask him what he would do because he's gonna give you the wrong advice the only thing i could say is like that's probably the best commercial disney could have is like hey they didn't take any of my ideas now everyone's gonna want to buy a fucking ticket yeah now i'm actually (laughs) excited to watch them Hi, my name is Anthony Dinar, and today I have a very special co-host with me today, a libertarian constitutional civil rights lawyer whose opinions are his own and do not represent his employer. Welcome, Timothy Sanderford. Thanks, great to be on. Welcome to Torture Vision. A six-year-old Anthony Fremont looks like any other boy, but looks can be deceiving. He is a monster, a boy with godlike powers. He can practically do just about anything with a thought of his mind. This is obviously season three, episode eight of The Twilight Zone, the original series, which I know you're familiar with. It's a good life. <laughs> that's that's right. This all takes place in a small town in Ohio. In fact, a handful of inhabitants do not even know if the rest of the world is destroyed or simply just vanished away to nothingness. Anthony has eliminated electricity, automobiles, and television signals. Basically, he controls everything, including the weather and what supplies can be found in the grocery store. Anthony creates and destroys as he pleases, such as that three-headed gopher. <laughs> you remember right. that? Oh, it's wonder. It's a good thing that you made this. <laughs> yeah. <That's right. laughs> in the in the written version of the short story, it's it's even more horrifying than that. I don't remember off the top of my head what it is he makes, but it's a much more horrific monster than they allowed on television. Interesting. That's cool. Um, Therefore, and rightfully so, all the adults, including his parents, tiptoe nervously around him, constantly telling him how everything he does is good because, you know, since displeasing him would end terribly. One of the adults, Dan, which is my favorite part of the episode, gets two presents from his wife. 
One, it's a bottle of brandy and some record for his birthday. It, Perry Como. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you like Perry Como? No, but it's just such a horrifying scene, and, <laughs> and it's so well acted that when he puts, when he really wants to listen to the Perry Como record, and uh, Anthony does not want to hear it. He doesn't even like singing, which is what pisses off Dan because he can't even have anybody sing to him "Happy Birthday." But the most uh, disturbing part, probably from drinking the liquid courage, he breaks down and he tells Anthony, "Like, well, like I don't, I don't care. This is ridiculous. This is no life to live." And he's focusing on Dan. Andy is. Anthony is. And he's like, you know, take him out now while you can. He's obviously, you know, preoccupied with me. And one of the women in the uh, the episode goes to grab a fire poker or something like that. But then she doesn't have the courage right. to uh, to go after Anthony. Anthony cries out, Dan, you're a bad man. You're a very bad man. And you keep thinking bad thoughts about me. And Dan tells him, like, you know, take him out. And that's when Anthony turns him into a jack-in-the-box with a human head. Which, uh, when you mentioned the gopher, is there a difference between... No, that's in the story. Um, of course, it's brilliantly parodied in the Simpsons episode based yes. on this. Which, uh, <laughs> they then go to family counseling, and the counselor asks Homer a question, and he says, I see you agree, Homer. And Homer says, I'm not nodding, it's just the air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> so the the reason why we do like these 10, uh, 10 minutes or less is because I want to see if you would watch something like this. Obviously, you have because you put it in your book, The Conscience of the Constitution. And I really do enjoy that book. But um, all the adults are horrified after what Anthony has done to Dan. Yet later on in 2003, the Twilight Zone titled It's Still a Good Life came out. Did you ever see that? I haven't seen the sequel. I've heard of it, but I've not watched it. It's definitely something I would suggest you watch, but it's surely hard to sit through because it's nothing like Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. You know, they also sort of remade the episode for the film, the Twilight Zone film. Yes. Made in the 80s. And I remember it was also quite a letdown compared to the original. Right, right. That was also the very first skit in that movie, um, that helicopter scene. Uh, three people died in That's that. That's right. Yeah. One of the great tragedies in Hollywood that led to serious um, new rules on limiting the use of child actors. And it's particularly horrifying because, um, you know, the entire death was filmed because it was, they were filming a tank yeah. and the helicopter crashed on top of the people in the awful situation. They obviously didn't use that, right? That's I would right. assume. The movie was delayed for several years as it was re-edited and that whole sequence was not used in the final film. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with a Mountain Dew commercial where there's a guy who's going skydiving and uh, he's got Mountain Dew and it's a lot of fun. Um, he actually dies <laughs> at the end of that episode or that end of that scene. And it's it's really disturbing to think like, I watched that over and over and over again as a child, and, and it's weird to see, like, that's his last final moments. <laughs> well, you know, the original of It's a Good Life is, I would argue, the best theatrical depiction of totalitarianism mm -hmm. in the 20th century. It's uh, the, movie, the episode came out, I think, in 1960, so it was only about seven years or so after Stalin's death. And the film and the, the story on which it is based is an absolutely pitch-perfect description of life under Stalin's totalitarian rule, where every thought is potential death sentence, where Big Brother really is watching you, watching you inside your skull, and can follow every, 
every thought you, you have to ensure that you only think good thoughts. And this is the difference between totalitarianism and other former forms of, of tyranny, in that other forms of tyranny in previous centuries were perfectly happy to have the subject dislike the ruler as long as the subject obeyed the ruler and didn't cause trouble and didn't make waves. What totalitarianism introduced in the 20th century was a political rule in which you were forced to love the ruler. And what Big Brother demands, and what Stalin demanded, and what Hitler demanded, and what, what Anthony demands in, in this episode, is that you not just that you obey, but that you love the ruler. Yeah. And Winston Smith ends 1984 loving Big Brother, genuinely loving Big Brother, because what Big Brother has done through torture is to make it that Winston Smith can't tell the difference between love and not love. The difference between a legitimate rule and tyrannical enslavement is analogous to the difference between making love and being raped. The act is the same, but one is willing and one is compulsory. And the ruler in a totalitarian state is forcing the victim of rape to love being raped, to love the ruler, oh, interesting. rather than simply to obey. And, and that is why it's so effective. And there's a wonderful poem on this subject, on the subject uh, that you mentioned uh, about the ant who raises the poker. Yeah. doesn't have the courage. There's a wonderful poem on that subject um, by a Hungarian poet whose name I won't attempt to pronounce <laughs> called A Sentence on Tyranny. Ulius is, I believe, how you pronounce the, the poet's name. And it's an incredibly powerful, lengthy poem done in a single sentence about what it's like to live under Soviet totalitarian domination and know that you are partly at fault for collaborating with the state, and that <laughs> you are weak, and you're, you're weakened in part by your loved ones, by you're chained by the fact that if you disobey, your loved ones will be brutalized. And that's what it, life in, in this little town is like under Anthony's rule. He can read your thoughts, and he can punish not only you, but everyone you love, and destroy everything that matters to you because his thought is reality. That's yeah. the other thing about totalitarianism is that what, when Winston Smith is told two plus two equals five, if the party says so, <laughs> that's literally true. According to the, the doctrines of totalitarianism, communism and Nazism, there is no such thing as an objective reality aside from what the ruler says the reality is. And so if you disagree then that just means there's something wrong with you. You're mentally deranged. You have a mental problem because the ruler has said X is X. And therefore, if you think that X is not X, that it's Y instead, there's something wrong with you and you need to be taught superior um, way of thinking about things. And the, the Twilight Zone was particularly good about this, by the way. It's not just it's a good life. There's another episode that's on very similar things called Number 16 Looks Just Like You. Have you seen this episode? No. This is where... Uh, everybody at a certain age is allowed to choose their body type, but there's only like 20 body types. To <laughs> and this one girl decides she's happy with her body as it is, and she doesn't want to have the surgery done to make her look like every other number 16 in the world. And she's obviously mentally ill. Why would you want to be your own individual when you could be loved by Big Brother? <laughs> And that captures, I think, really also really well the the idea that if if you live in a totalitarian state where the ruler's will is not just law but is reality itself, then for you to think on your own is a form of mental disease. Now, there's another form of that, and that is religion. The idea of God can hear your thoughts, right? Can punish you for your bad 
thoughts, for thinking bad things, can make any form of monster he desires at any time. <laughs> that it is wrong, it's a crime against the world for you to listen to Perry Como. If God <laughs> well, what is that but religion? Yeah, it's like uh, in mob terms, the wise guy's right even when he's wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and here we're talking about not just the wise guy, but the wisest of all possible guys. Right? Yeah. Uh, we're talking about a totalitarian ruler who commands that you love him and will punish you in an eternity of hellfire for not loving him and knows when you're sleeping and knows when you're awake and knows whether you love him and when you don't love him. Yeah. And will punish you for such things, innocuous things, as the kind of music you listen to, books you read, or the kind of movies you watch. So it's it, being a send-up of totalitarianism, of course, it is inherently a send-up of religion, because religion is totalitarian. I do have one additional note yes. on, you know, speaking of totalitarianism and religion's relation. I, I know of no finer... Uh, exploration of that in poetic term, terms than R.E.M.'s classic song Losing My Religion, the lyrics of which and the video of which are really show the connection between the collapse of one's religious views as one matures and realizes that they're fables and the collapse of the Soviet Union which was occurring at around the time that, that the song came out. And in, in the video it, the, the communist iconography is to be seen. But the lyrics of the song are Things like, oh no, I've said too much. I haven't said enough. To maintain the illusion to oneself that one believes. That's, that's, and this is what Ilias gets into in, in a sentence of, against tyranny. That by being forced to love the ruler, you have to persuade yourself that you love the ruler. And so you live in a constant state of self-persuasion and self-lying. And the, the psychological experience of that is brilliantly explored in the R.E.M. song about I, I've, set it, I've set myself up for failure. I'm, I'm starting to doubt things. I can't allow myself to doubt things. Everything depends upon my suspending my own disbelief and insisting on still loving the ruler and still believing in this faith, even though I know secretly, in a, in a, a secrecy I can never admit to myself, that it's untrue. That's really interesting. I've heard that song. I, I didn't recognize it. It, it sells itself said, yeah. as an ordinary relationship song, as falling out of love with someone. But of course, why would you be afraid of falling out of love with someone? Of course, it, it'd be sad to, to lose a relationship. But, you know, people move on sometimes. The reason why the singer is terrified of losing his religion is because everything depends on that illusion. And he's... Right. And, and so there's this... Con that, that's the connection that, that between a compulsory love and political tyranny. Because political tyranny is just never enough for the totalitarian ruler. It has to also be, you have to have, you have to love being enslaved. There's a wonderful line in the Bible about this, actually, ironically enough. <laughs> um, in, in the Psalms, I think it is, um, our, our torment, uh, what was it? Um, our, our tormentors demanded of us mirth. And that, that's really the theme of it's a wonderful, it's a good life or of, of, Losing my religion is our tormentors demanded of us mirth. I wonder how many people, including myself, listened to that and had no idea. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. 